I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, everybody? Happy Wednesday. It's still hot as hell here, so bear, bear with me if I start to sound drowsy. I do apologize. I'm not used to this heat. It is killing me. Um, it's not even that hot, dudes. It's the, um, it's the, the humidity that's getting to me. But anyway, enough about the weather. You have enough of that about that with me and with every Friday. I'm joined by somebody that's going to help us dive a little bit more into these Colin Sexton rumors. We'll put the rumors in, in hyphens for now, in air quotes, because we're not too sure how much uh, credence to give them. But nevertheless, I'm joined by SB Nation Compadre, host of the Lockdown Cavs podcast and the editor for the Fear the Sword website, which is SB Nation's Cavs website, Mr. Evan Damarell. How are you doing today, bro? Good, man. How are you? Where are you exactly? I, I, you asked me about Cleveland. I didn't even ask you. I feel rude now not asking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, I'm in hell right now, dude. Um, oh, no, God. Jokes aside, I'm in um, Birmingham, England. Uh, okay, okay. So, so have you ever watched the TV show Peaky Blinders? Yeah, I have. So I'm that city where that's based. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna look up the weather real quick just so I can empathize with you. It's a literally bit. not that hot. It's just so humid. It should be. Oh, it says 54 percent humidity, and it's 10 p.m. there for you. That sounds miserable. Because in Cleveland right now, I love talking about the weather. My girlfriend gets so annoyed with things. I'm like, oh, did you see the weather? And she's like, can you not talk about it for a second? It's 66 percent humidity, but it's 79 here, so it's about the same. But it's supposed to rain tonight too, so that's probably why it's so muggy outside. Dude, I'm just not used to it. It's usually just cold, and I've become very adapted to cold. And um, so when it's humid, I, my body just can't, it doesn't function the same. You do well with the weather here, then, because it's it's cold from. I'd say about September until April every year, and then there's just like a brief weird patch where it's really weirdly hot outside, and you, you enjoy it for about eight months of the year, and then you'd be miserable like the rest of us. And I'm I'm a I'm a bigger guy to begin with, so the heat and I don't mix very well at all. So I'm I'm just I'll, I I understand your pain. I'm in that exact same boat, dude. I'm a bigger dude myself, so um the weather just hits me hard. But East Coast weather in general is so similar to what we get, like um. If you guys get snow, um, a day or two later, we're getting snow or rain. Like we just, we're, I'm literally like two days behind you guys on the East Coast. So that's, I tend to get like my weather reports just from speaking to people over um, in Boston, New York, um, Cleveland, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just know what's coming after a day or two at that point. So it does help. Yeah. No, that's, that's really funny though. Like. Yes. Snow. It's so it's on Cleveland at least. It's right on the lake. And when a big snowstorm hits nine times out of town, it doesn't actually hit downtown. It's just really cold. But if you go five, six miles outside of the city, it's an absolute whiteout. And it's just fascinating to watch because it's just kind of like gray and gross and wet. And then you leave the city a little bit and you're like, oh, my God, it's a frozen hellscape out here. <laughs> Does traffic come to a standstill, though? Uh, yes and no. First snowfall of the year, everyone forgets how to drive. It's usually the first rainfall of the year. Everyone just kind of freaks out at the same time. And then people just get weirdly aggressive or I don't know. I try to plan accordingly. So if it, if I know the weather's going to be bad, I'm like, okay, I definitely don't want to be out in this. So let me go run my errands now or do what I need to do and then just hunker down. And speaking of hunkering down, that's when the calves are right in the heat of it. I can watch them get blown out by your Celtics. 
I mean, to be fair, it's just Carson Edwards at this point. Yeah, it only, really he, is. He, he just seems to have Sorry. something against the Cavs. You gave me some PTSD flashbacks with that name. <laughs> I just like... It's like a, it's like I'm like a Vietnam vet just sitting back in my chair in absolute shock right now. I'm, a, I'm pulling up Carson right now. Yeah, his first game against Cleveland, 18 and five. So you know, not terrible. But Tristan Thompson, and then you know, just making his Celtics debut, which is always hard. But Boston won by 38. And then you look at the next one. Carson Edwards didn't play; only had four minutes. And then in the last game of the season. Uh, Carson Edwards again didn't play. You know, Carson Edwards is a killer, though. Like it was last season that he is. Uh, do you know what it is? It's just he doesn't score against anybody, but he'll get like fifteen or twenty against Cleveland. Yeah. It's just bizarre. It is bizarre because I was talking to my it, it, the Cavs are bizarre in general because I was talking to my friend earlier today and he's like, you know, he's a big Philly guy, and he said, you know, I dread when the Sixers play the Cavs because it's going to be one of the most humiliating losses for us on the season where like you think because like you look at last year like Philly rolling along they had a pretty solid regular season and then you look at their games against Cleveland and I said I don't know man I think it's maybe because Jordan Clarkson blew a kiss to one of the Jenners while she was dating Ben Simmons courtside in front of Ben Simmons just as an act of disrespect or Tristan Thompson hit the first (laughs) three-pointer in his first career three-pointer in Philly before Ben Simmons ever even hit one in Philly. It's just all interesting stuff. I don't know. It's a goofy team, goofy times, and I don't know. But I think Boston's in a lot better place. I don't know if I'm being too bold in saying that, but I'm intrigued to see where both these teams head because there's been a lot of turnover with the Celtics, and I'm just interested to see where they're headed. Yeah, from a Celtics perspective, I think there's a lot of optimism right now, especially with all the coaching changes, the addition of um, NBA experience coaches, guys with actual playing careers in the league and stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of optimism there, but then there's still a lot of concern around the, the current roster construction, the amount of youth. Um, obviously, moving on from Kemba Walker and not replacing him at the moment has led to the Colin Sexton rumors. I saw one mm-hmm. about Bledsoe earlier today, which really Ooh. upset me. <laughs> That'd be rough. Bledsoe, Bledsoe would be rough. <laughs> yeah, it would be. I'd, I'd be very, very, very upset. I, I don't know how I could feasibly watch him for a season. Uh, I have friends who cover the Bucks and watch the Bucks religiously, and you know they may win the championship tonight as we're recording this. But I don't know how they can watch Bledsoe either. And you know, this is an interesting segue here because Colin Sexton. Is a fascinating player for the Cavaliers. And something that, you know, I just think is funny is when he was coming out of college at Alabama, the player he drew the most comparisons to is Eric Bledsoe. And if Boston did happen to trade for him, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, he's nothing like Eric Bledsoe. Not in the slightest. So the number one thing for me was like this season, he kind of had like um, a period of time where he was just hot. He was blowing up. Um, Numbers were great. He looked like he'd really figured out his place in the league, his place in the offense. And then everything just kind of seemed to stall for him again. And um, what was that through injury? Or was that like a change in systematics, schematics, sorry? Or what kind of led to that like blow up and then that sharp decline again? It's a it's a combination of a lot of things. You could say injuries could be a schematic thing. I think the addition of Isaac Okoro and kind of showing that okay, he is an NBA caliber defender coming into the league immediately, which was 
very surprising because coming out of Auburn, Okoro was known as a defensive stud, but he may need some time to season and condition as, you know, you shouldn't put a ton of expectations on an NBA rookie. But with Colin, um, he's been kind of always a bucket getter for Cleveland. Like I said, coming out of the draft at Alabama, they thought, okay, he's going to be like Eric Bledsoe where he's not much of a shooter. He can move the rock a little bit, but he's more known for his defense. And quite honestly, you get the inverse of the defense and offense, at least the shooting side of things for Colin. You get to see him in Cleveland where at first he took a lot of long twos. It drew the frustration of Cavs fans a lot where he wouldn't take those two steps back from beyond behind the three-point line. And then a lot of it just crystallized in his rookie season when he was snubbed for rising stars and Colin's the type of player where he's a little psycho where he will read and consume everything that's being said about him and use it as motivation. It's a cliche to say like, oh, my haters are my motivation. But with Colin, it's it's really true. And I'm going to be saying there's a lot of cliches about Colin throughout this, but he's justified all of them. But he's become a very good shooter. Um, he doesn't take a lot of threes. When we were doing play reviews on Fear the Sword, I wrote about Colin early and I'm sure since you follow me, and if there's your listeners who follow me as well, um, Cavs fans think I hate Colin, which is further from the truth. Nothing further from the truth. But I said the only thing that he could really change heading into his fourth season is take a couple more threes. He take, took four a game last year, I believe. And there's you know a direct correlation of the team being more efficient offensively with a team that takes and makes more threes. And if Colin is just uptakes his volume of threes, uh, he would just benefit the team even better and also just inflate his numbers a bit too. But he's a really good three-level scorer. I think the biggest addition to his game this year is the fact that, like you see, like you said, his numbers are really popping off. But I think the biggest change in, like, shouts to my uh, partner in crime, Chris Manning, at both Fear the Sword and Locked on Cavs, where he said Colin's biggest thing he needs to work on is using that aggressiveness because he plays at 100 miles an hour every possession to get to the free throw line by drawing contact and playing through contact to get the line as well. And Colin did a lot of that, and he upticked his free throw percentage and his free throw, free throw rate, and that's a huge addition to his game as well, where I can comfortably say, like, okay, if I need a player to go get a bucket, Colin Sexton's my guy. The problem is, like, at the same time, you see a bit of a dip, a dip and decline, is Cleveland was really hit by injuries at points. Like, Darius Garland missed significant time. Kevin Love, obviously, to surprise no one, missed significant time. Larry Nance Jr. missed a significant time. Um, Isaac Okoro was in and out with random injuries. Jared Allen was in and out with random injuries. There was a time where I believe Cleveland started Damian Dotson, Colin Sexton, Dean Wade, Isaiah Hartenstein, and I believe Tor or Jetty Osmond or Torian Prince before Torian Prince went down with injury as well. Like, not a great roster to begin with. Um, doesn't inspire much hope and credits to JB Bickerstaff for trying his best to maximize the potential of this team. And he, he got it some nights, but that's where teams, cause with Colin, at least last season, the biggest gain came when he, took down the Brooklyn Nets in their big three debut and it kind of put them on the map. And I think they really started to command the attention of the teams defensively. And you just see a direct correlation in that too, where if you just kind of shut down Colin, you shut down the entire Cavs offense and it just kind of fell apart from there. So it's hard to really say like he was bad during those downward slopes because I still think he was solid enough. and He made the most of what he could, but I really do think the Cavs have something here. And you're probably wondering now, why are they exploring trading him? But we can talk about that in a bit. But he, he's a pretty good young player. And he, uh, you know, good consolation prize from Boston for the Kyrie Irving trade. 
So this is why I'm kind of really curious about him as a as a fit for Boston more. So I'm like obviously you've seen him much more than me. I, the Cavs are a team that I've struggled to main keep up with this year, just because of the sheer amount of the games coming thick and fast. Like um, generally, I try and watch two games of each team minimum a month. But um, the Cavs just seem to be one that I kind of let fall by the wayside. And that's no disrespect to the team themselves. It's just obviously keeping up with so many so quickly. But one thing that really stood out to me statistically is he's very much just a rim pressure guy um, on offense, just in terms of frequency, in terms of like that gravity drawing. Um, you know, most of his shots came around the short mid, then came around the rim. The, he did, like you say, he did look to eradicate those long twos, and that's something the Celtics have dealt with with Jason Tatum for a few years. So uh, I feel your pain from that frustration standpoint. But then you look at like his three point scoring is like twenty two percent in frequency for the year from three point, and obviously you've got this is cleaning the glass, so you can exclude garbage time there. So maybe it's slightly higher once you once you factor in garbage minutes. But for a Celtics team that does like to run a bunch of five-out offense, they like to run players off the wings from Chicago or Miami, how would you envision Sexton being able to fit into there? Would he be more of a driving dish guy? And would he even be capable of taking that step back to more of a distributive role, a third a third guy in the offense type of system? Or would that be limiting his, his game and his growth? I don't think it would limit his game and his growth necessarily if you were to plug him in a situation that is a lot different from Cleveland's. Um, I just think ideally for Colin Sexton, because because of these trade rumors and just because of things I've heard and things others have heard too, like teams that are linked and interested to him, I think ideally you want to pair him next to a playmaking wing who can, you know, soak up a lot of those assists where Colin doesn't have to be worried about being a facilitator, like a primary facilitator. He can be more of a tertiary facilitator who makes the smart reads and the correct reads. And you saw a lot of that, at least when Jared Allen first came to town. And that's something he never had with Andre Drummond, at least, where when Colin would drive into the lane and be commanding the attention of other defenders, he could easily dump it down to Jared Allen for a dunk or a layup. Like, those are smart reads and encouraging things. And Towards the end of last season, you saw the Athletic put out a piece about how his teammates were frustrated with him because he wasn't moving the rock and he had tunnel vision. And there's opposing players who say he's not going to pass it to you and whatnot. Like, I don't know if that's 100% true. That might be a little bit of hyperbole, but who knows at this point. Um, Colin really upticked his increase in playmaking as well, but I don't know if that's 100% sustainable. But it's there. I think if you can see more of that heading to next season, I can comfortably say, okay, Colin is really working on the playmaking part of his game. Like he's clearly made a concerted effort to maybe take down or decrease the shot attempts and get his teammates more involved, which, you know, leads to more harmonious basketball. But like if you look at the Boston scope of things, like Jason Tatum can move the rock pretty well. Jalen Brown is a very competent defender. Like that's the other side of things, too, is I think you need to put, because because Colin's 6'1. And he's playing shooting guard for the Cavs, but ideally I think you just say he's a guard. You don't say which position he is, but you put like a bigger body defender who can kind of mop up some of the defensive assignments and maybe your Boston listeners know this better, but like kind of similar to what Brad did with Isaiah Thomas at the one and he put Avery Bradley right next to him and Avery Bradley would soak up a lot of the defensive assignments that IT would sometimes have to deal with and sometimes like cover up some of the limitations it had like i'm not saying colin's that bad i think he has the potential to be a good defender if he really puts in the effort because he just has the physical ability with his very long wingspan but 
at the same time, it's just it's it's tough to really figure out what you have with Colin because he hasn't been in a winning environment either. And that's like your questions are completely fair. Can he be more of a facilitator? Can he be more of an efficient score with less attempts? Like I can't fully answer that because I haven't seen it happen in Cleveland yet because the narrative on him is completely shifted from college where people like to say, well, Colin Sexton's a boat. If you traded him for draft picks, you get a mystery box. You're really trading. If you're trading from draft picks, you're trading a mystery box for a mystery box because you don't know what kind of player you ideally have with Colin. Why do you put him in a winning situation? And this is always the issue with a guy that's coming in as like who's been a primary fact, like a primary piece to a team's offense for a team that hasn't been. So it was similar with like Kemba Walker, right? Like Kemba yeah. Walker was a high usage guard for Charlotte, um, bunch of scoring accolades, multiple all star appearances. But there were still question marks around can he do that for a big market team during the playoffs when teams are scheming directly against him? And obviously, mm-hmm. we never got to see that because of injuries, because of. Um, COVID, you know, everyone always points back to that Toronto series where Nick Nurse basically singled him out with box and one and diamond and two and really mm-hmm. tried to force him out of the game. So I can see what you're saying. If you haven't seen Sexton in that position, it's very hard to give a definitive yes, he could thrive or no, he couldn't because you just yeah. don't, every situations do make players' careers as much as a player's, um, physical and skillful attributes along with their, um, personality and application. So one of the other kind of aspects to look at for me is this narrative of you touched on where teammates were getting frustrated with him not passing the ball. Now, from a statistical standpoint, uh, one of the things that I kind of looked at straight away was how many of the team's baskets were coming off a Colin Sexton assist while Sexton was on the floor. And it was something like 26% of non-Sexton baskets were assisted on by Colin while he was on the floor. So to me, that says like, that's a, that's a quarter of the team's offense is mm. coming directly from a Colin Sexton, most likely a dump off or most likely a bailout pass or a swing pass when the defense closes in on him. But that's still a willingness to pass. So do you see this as media hyperbole or do you see it as something along the lines of maybe there's some truth there? Maybe this has been leaked to try, to try and, um, make him want out of the of the franchise or is it just a, a perfect storm of the rumors and there's some re- there are some disgruntled players that feel they deserve more touches than Colin it's it's a it, so it's a weird mix of things and I actually just wrote about this with you the sword where you can look at the statistical output and say yeah there is some real there's some real sustainable tangible data that says Colin actually is a better playmaker and facilitator and like I said you saw it at more towards the end of the season when that piece from the athletic came out that kind of criticized him. And then the Cavs weirdly trotted him out to the media and Colin said, well, I'm just gonna let my game speak for himself itself. And that's the kind of player he is where he, he's a weird, weirdly wired kid where when I got to know him, he's not active on social media and things like that. He has his family manages accounts for him. Um, I remember there was a video where he had to do something for Nike where it looked like he was being held hostage because the last thing he wanted to do was film a social promo for Nike but um, the trade stuff, maybe some of it is teammates being frustrated with him and him kind of being the common factor. I think losing and losing like the Cavs had, especially towards the end of the season, kind of brings out some ugliest lumps for a lot of teams too, where things just look a lot worse and feel a lot worse. And then in the inverse of that is winning cures all things. So if the Cavs were winning, I don't think his teammates would have as nearly big a problem about how Colin plays. But I just think for Cleveland, at least, it's the hesitation to have to pay him. 
because he's rookie max extension eligible this offseason. They don't obviously don't have to pay him till next year if they don't want to. But a rookie max for Colin be five years, one hundred and sixty three point eight million. I want to say I might have those last two digits flip flopped in my head. But either way, there's a lot of hesitation because in three years that Colin's been here. And again, it's not easy to build out of the shadow of LeBron James, but the Cavs are trying their best and a bit of better equipped this time around compared to the first time it happened when LeBron left for Miami. Um, the Cavs haven't really had that upward trajectory of becoming a winning organization or playoff team with Colin kind of being the central piece. But they also, they've been the same. So I would say Colin is a player who doesn't necessarily raise your ceiling or he doesn't bottom out your floor either. He's just there. He is a positive scoring threat. He averaged 24.3 points per game last year on uh, effective field goal percentage of nearly 52%. Like that's really good for a young player. And then if you're his agent, you use that and then you use the assist percentage like you mentioned. And then you mentioned the fact that the Cavs have kind of trotted him out as the face of the franchise and the general manager and the coach have tapped him as the cultural leader of the team. And there's all these other factors in play as well, um, like such as like the Cavs voted him player of the week every week for like the first two years of his career, which is just odd. But you know what, man, rock on at the same time. But um, so there's like a lot of ammunition that Colin's agent could have going into these negotiations to say, okay, my client wants the, a max contract from you guys. And these are the reasons why he deserves it. And then the Cavs can say, well, we don't want to pay Colin a max contract. And so that could get ugly there. And the Cavs could let this play out into restricted free agency next year. Of course, like that's always an option in the back pocket. But then there's the fear because Colin has really broken the stigma of what comes with an eighth overall pick where, historically it's not really a very glamorous position to be drafted in um and kind of just buck the trend on things too where like they've really grown this talent and really developed it into something where they say okay well if he signs an offer in restricted free agency that we don't feel comfortable matching we're gonna lose a homegrown talent for nothing so i think that's why the trade market's really they're really exploring it and like i found out sunday afternoon that the golden state warriors were intrigued by adding Colin because he's on his rookie contract and I mean they could try and trade some nominal assets for him it wouldn't be the seventh pick it'd be like the 14th pick and maybe a player or something like that to try and get Colin to add some bench scoring to their system but I don't know how great the fit would be for Golden State um but I also then followed up by saying that like Cleveland is in the driver's seat on this one they have total control over Colin's contract situation they don't have to extend it they don't feel comfortable this upcoming offseason they can wait till next year to figure something out and they could be, you know, really push this to the trade deadline if they can't figure out anything, what's going on going forward and they could just move them then. So the Cavs are kind of cruising through this. I just think things are heating up because the draft is right around the corner and there are some teams like New York who had a pretty good season last year. I think they were a fun story or you have Miami who was disappointing last season, but they were just in the NBA finals and they hung with the Lakers for a little bit. Like there's teams like that that are interested. And then I know like most teams in the league are kind of monitoring it because it's a lot of what I've been saying. Colin Sexton is a very good scoring guard. Um, He'd be really fun. Like if you put up on the Bucks in the NBA finals, Colin would be such a fun player to play alongside some of these other players Milwaukee has because if you minimize Colin's role where you don't have to ask him to do too much and just say, okay, we just need you to go out there and get buckets. We need you to go out there and be a spark plug on offense, whether that's a starter or as a six man, what have you. That'd be awesome to watch. And I think a lot of teams are aware of that. And because 
it's known that Cleveland is exploring trading him and that there is some interest out there and the fact that they're hesitant to pay him and that Cleveland also has to find a team who, if they want to trade for Colin, they probably want to extend him as well because the team also doesn't want to give up assets for a player that'll walk the following season. The Cavs are negotiating at a position at disadvantage. So teams can kind of lowball Colin because I know fans are kind of upset with some of the packages that have been rumored and speculated on and stuff I've reported to, but it's just a really fluid situation. I think it's just heating up around the draft. If nothing happens around the draft, it could happen again. I feel like that first major wave of free agency this offseason. And if it doesn't happen, then you'll probably hear some more chatter again closer to the trade deadline. And if it doesn't happen, then he's either going to test free agency or the Cavs have committed more money to him to keep him here in Cleveland long term. So when we're talking about the draft, like for me, this is like I'm looking at Cleveland as a team at the moment, looking at the young pieces they already have in-house. So you, as you said, you've got Jaron Allen, Darius Garland, um, Okoro, and then Colin Sexton. So if you were to move Sexton, ideally that's going to be for an extra draft piece or a young guy that's one or two years into the league that's shown some promise. That would be my number one assumption. Am I right? In, you wouldn't be looking for a veteran piece in return. No, you wouldn't be. Um, I think you'd be looking for picks. Uh, the only way I think Cleveland would take on a bird is if it's a veteran who can make a positive impact because I think the Cavs are also under the pressure of ownership to try and make an effort to be a winning team. So maybe it's a veteran if it's like a, a, a serious upgrade, like it's a Brandon Ingram who kind of falls in the same vein as a young player or for some reason Cavs fans thought Jalen Brown for Colin Sexton could be a package that's explored, but I, I kind of threw that out right away but yeah i think it'd be draft picks or a young player but the front office also has the added pressure from ownership to try and make a push for the play or the playoffs this year so if they try to make a move for sexton or just make a move in general for a veteran that also wouldn't surprise me and the reason i ask is because obviously the celtics have been one of the teams that at the very beginning of these rumors were thrown around as a as a possible trade partner but they obviously don't have a pick outside of the second round and it's just not very valuable or enticing for any team, to be quite fair, especially when you're talking of, about a player like Colin Sexton, who just a few minutes ago, we, you were discussing the viability of offering him a max contract. So from a Celtics perspective, what type of package would you see as realistic and viable that would work for both teams? Do you have one? Have you looked into that? I haven't really looked into it, no. So if you want to, we can work this out in real time if you want and figure out a package that works for both of us. But I think I... I am lower on Collins Valley right now. I was like, no, but I'm willing to hear pitches too, because it could get funky with Boston for sure. Like they have some interesting pieces. It's the lack of draft picks. Like you said, that maybe have, they may have a hard time greasing the wheels of a trade. Yeah. Especially when most teams want to get in on this year's draft due to the depth of talent from um, exactly the first round. Like when I'm looking at it, I'm like, it has to include one of Aaron Neesmith or Romeo Langford to begin with, both high upside guys. Now, I always say Romeo's got the highest ceiling. He's probably, in my opinion, out of the young guys on the team, he's got the highest ceiling, but also has the lowest floor. Mm-hmm. So I think that you'd probably be more inclined to throw Aaron Neesmith into that, but he had a better rookie season than Romeo, stayed healthy, um, showed signs of being more than just a, a shooter. You know, He showed um, free-level scoring ability, great defense, great hustle. But then you still need to grease the wheels. So do you add in a Grant Williams or a Tristan Thompson to send him back? Or do you add some picks? To, like Obviously, you need to make the money work. And that's easy because Sexton's salary is a rookie-level salary. So the Celtics, realistically, can just take him in with a TPE. 
mm-hmm. but it's just wh- how, what works for Cleveland in return. And when there's packages out there that are going to involve a lottery pick, for instance, the 14th pick from Golden State, it becomes really hard for me to not only envision Sexton becoming a Celtic, but envision a package that actually works for Cleveland as much as it would for Boston. Yeah, it becomes tough. I chuckled to myself when you said Tristan Thompson because I think Cavs fans are extremely nostalgic for certain players. Like when Matthew Dellavedova was traded back here, it's the loudest I've heard the arena get in quite a while because I think the Cavs were just having a pretty moribund season at that point. But they they bring back Dellavedova and welcome back to the fans and everything, and like the crowd just goes absolutely wild. So if Cleveland is going to get Tristan Thompson back from Boston, um. That'd be interesting. I think Neesmith would be interesting as well. Uh, I don't know if that does a lot for Cleveland. I know they were, if they did end up trading back in last year's draft, he would have been an option for them um, later in the first round. I believe Aaron went 14. So like in the middle of the first round, that's not a terrible pickup for Cleveland. And he's cost controlled because he's still on his rookie contract for quite a while now. But at the same time, it's just, it's tough because Boston has a lot of veterans that I don't think they want to move. Like, I think Jalen Brown's completely off the table in this scenario. And, like, it's like a player like that if Cleveland is really trying to sink their teeth into something. But I don't know. Like, would Marcus Smart be available somehow in a trade? Because the Cavs are looking for a veteran who maybe wants to be here and will be kind of a cultural setter for them because they are hoping they could get that with Kevin Love and they never got it. And Tristan Thompson was that for a little bit, but Tristan left in free agency after Cleveland lowballed him. So there's a lot of interesting options for sure, but I just don't know what both sides could do to make it work because if, like I said, the Cavs are kind of in the driver's seat here. Like they control when and what they want for Sexton. It's not really Sexton pushing things here because he's going to be a free agent like yeah his camps can make things uglier for sure because he's represented by CAA but at the same time it's not like a huge rush on Cleveland's part to say like okay Colin Sexton doesn't want to be here we got to trade him it's more so Colin wants to be here but we don't want to pay him for how much he wants to be here so let's explore the market it made me chuckle when you mentioned Marcus Smart because he's a guy that's divisive among Celtics fans in general like there's a huge proportion of Celtics fans that would love to see Marcus Smart just spend his entire career in Boston. And then there's a swell of Celtics fans that would love to see him moved at the earliest opportunity. Um, obviously, his value probably falls more towards the staying in Boston long term than being asked to leave. But the one thing that has been a very big discussion point on this podcast for the last few weeks is how available is Marcus Smart? He's entering the last year of his deal. Mm-hmm. The Celtics extend him. Um, do, does Smart see his value more than what the Celtics do? And there's questions about whether or not moving him is a more viable option than paying him close to 20 million a year, which is what a lot of people are kind of est- guesstimating his value to be. Mm-hmm. But is that expiring contract really that enticing for Cleveland? Like, hey, here's Marcus Smart, a culture setter for you guys, but you're going to have to do it, do a lot to keep him around at the end of the season. Yeah. You're, that to me, devalues players especially on that last unless you're a team that's looking to shed salary in that free agency class like an it just doesn't make sense to pick up a guy like Marcus Smart if you're not 100% sold on the fact that you can um, keep him and re-sign him to a longer term deal and that's my only concern when talking about a guy like Colin Sexton that's young and there's other packages out there that's going to give you cost controlled assets or just Mm -hmm. even just controlled assets along with some picks it just doesn't make sense to me. And this is where I think the biggest 
hurdle for Boston would be if they did have uh, a legitimate interest in Sexton is mm-hmm. just making a package work. So there's so many other teams out there with um, ridiculous amounts of draft picks. Like the Pelicans, they, they, they've got picks left, right and center. They might not want Sexton, but they might not mind being a third team in the deal to swing some draft picks and pick up a, pick up something kind of peripherals, just like mm-hmm. you guys did with Jarrett Allen. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I'm going to ask you this. If everybody was on the table for Cleveland, because I don't think he's necessarily as readily available as something, but would Larry Nance Jr. more pique your fancy for Marcus Smart? Because I think in theory, Larry's fit would be really good in Boston because he can play three through five. He can play small ball five. He can play a big body three like he has for Cleveland. But like he's a jack of all trades master of none. And I think he'd be a lot better on a playoff team than he would on a rebuilding team like Cleveland. Larry Nance Jr. is a name that's been floating around Celtics fans' mouths for a few months now. Um, I believe it. <laughs> for me personally, I've probably used his name 50 times in the last two weeks. He's definitely somebody that interests me. I think he fills a, a, a clear need for the Celtics off that bench. But how available would he be and what type of package yeah. would it take to get Larry Nance Jr.? See, that's, that's where it gets tricky because early last year, um, there were reports from like Zach Lowe saying that teams were calling about Larry Nance Jr. and the Cavs were by at least by one team offered two first round picks for it. I don't think that's a hundred percent realistic now, just because Larry is fairly injury prone. Like it, there's some health concerns there. I think it, a lot of it does have to do with the medication he takes for his Crohn's disease and just results in just a little bit of a weaker support system in terms of his body and stuff. Where like it's just a lot of freak injuries too that are unfortunate, but. Like my friend, my co-host Chris Manning and I floated this idea like, well, every player was available and the Cavs really wanted to get like a defensive guard who wants to be a culture setter like Marcus Smart. Like Larry Nance Jr. makes a lot of sense for all parties involved. Contingent on the fact that Marcus maybe signs a short-term extension with Cleveland just so they can kind of keep him around beyond just this season to build that culture. And at the same time, if he kind of has a positive impact, the Cleveland could then flip him to a team where he can maybe play for a contender because he's going to be entering his 30 soon enough. And I don't know. That's just, that's always a, the trade that's been like kind of in the back of my mind. And now that I'm talking to an actual person who covers the Celtics and lives, breathes and eats everything Celtics. Like I was curious about Larry, how you guys felt about Larry Nance. And I'm not surprised to hear that you guys were, are high on him. Yeah, um, very high on what he could give to the team and the, the position of need that the Celtics have and how, how well Nance fills that position of need. I do have questions whether or not it would be worth passing with Marcus Smart for. Um, I th- again, I think that has to come down to how Marcus contracts discussions go or what type of uh, vibe the front office are getting from Marcus in terms of re-signing and what he's expecting. But if you did decide to move on from Smart, then Larry Nance Jr. isn't a bad option. There will be people right now literally ready to leave me a one-star review for saying that. <laughs> um, but it is that's the the Marcus Smart discussion in a nutshell. The, the, it, it's just the way it goes. And I do understand from my perspective, Larry, from a, uh, in a trade with Cleveland, Larry Nance Jr. makes a bunch more sense than Conan Sexton just due to the viability of actually getting the deal over the line. Yeah, I think that's if Boston were to approach Cleveland in a trade, I think that's something more so that they need to look at at this point. It's just like I said, I don't know if the Celtics have enough to necessarily grease the wheels to get Sexton. Yeah, his value isn't the highest right now, which is why you're seeing underwhelming returns like Obi Toppin, Kevin Knox in the 21st pick in the draft is something I've heard or 
players like James Wiseman and Andrew Wiggins and then like the seventh pick from Golden State being off the table for Colin. Like teams are going to lowball the heck out of Cleveland on this one, but I think Boston, like I don't know how much Danny Ainge has taught Brad at this point in terms of tra- trading, but I don't know if Dan- Brad could lowball the Cavs enough to make that happen. But um, what if it was this- like Marcus Smart plus uh, pick your younger. Uh, it depends which young guy though. So would you say like Neesmith or? So it'd be one of Neesmith, Romeo, Pritchard, or um, Rob Williams. Mm. See, I don't know if it'd be Rob Williams because let's look at it this way: the Cavs. Oh, Grant. Were... Sorry, sorry. It's oh, 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 Grant. Oh, Grant. I mean, either of them. I don't know if they'd really work necessarily because Evan Mobley is going to become into Cleveland as probably the third overall pick. I think that kind of rules out most big men. I think you're not going to see Isaiah Hartenstein return to Cleveland because of it. Um, I think Langford would be intriguing, but I think either Langford or Neesmith could do that. But again, um, if you traded Nance and Sexton at the same time, I think the Cavs need to batten down the hatches at their at their headquarters because that's a PR nightmare for them too because those are the two most popular players on the roster. <laughs> yeah, that would uh, that's definitely not the right way to start a new season when you're just getting a, a really highly coveted pick as well. Yeah, that's it, it's not ideal, and I think for Cleveland, like they'd explore Larry Nance trades if nothing came to fruition with Kevin Love. But I think they're gonna buy out Love's contract at this point because the Olympics were a last gasp effort to try and get him just some type of interest for him, but it just didn't work out, obviously. So. I don't know if they're going to be too gung-ho on moving Larry at that point because you start Mobley next year and back him up with Nance. I think you just kind of prioritize that. But it'd also be remiss of Cleveland not to hear what offers are out there for any of their players because I don't think anyone's safe at the end of the day. You don't have a LeBron-type prospect here or a franchise corner, like a true franchise centerpiece that you is untradeable. And I think you might have that with a third pick, but on this roster right now, I think anyone can be available for the right price. And that kind of led me to my last question was the first thing that I thought about when I saw all of these Sexton rumors and everything was, is this because Darius Garland has shown so much upside and his improvements have made Sexton that little bit more expendable himself? Like, do you see that? Because there was a time where obviously Sexland was a thing and everybody saw these guys as a great duo, but it just feels like Garland is seen amongst the league, amongst fans as just that shades better of a prospect than what Sexton is. Um, see, that's tough because sex land, sex land is still a good thing in theory. I just don't think it's sustainable as you're starting backport court going forward because when they drafted Darius, they compared it to Portland and then fans on their own compared it to Utah or Toronto. And I think that's just kind of unfair to Darius and Colin. I think those are unrealistic expectations when you have like Damian Lillard and Donovan Mitchell and others in that conversation too. And also Fred Van Fleet and Kyle Lowry as well. Like that's an unfair thing, but I think, yeah, some of it is the fact that Darius really had a strong sophomore season. Um, I know some folks voted him for most improved player, but I think that's kind of a silly vote, but at the same time I could understand why if you made a serious argument for it. But, um, Darius was really solid. I think for him, at least, I need to see him stay consistently healthy more often because he had, well, at least in his rookie season, you see these flashes of potential in a lot of our listeners that locked on Cavs got sick of me saying it. If they had like a bingo board, they'd check it off because I talk about Darius's flashes and he started to capitalize on them in his sophomore season. But it's again, injuries held him back. Injuries kept him from being consistent on a night to night basis. I think some of it was some sneak stealth tanking on the Cavs part towards the end of the season just to uh, 
once they realized they were out of the play in race when they lost to Chicago, I think in mid March, they started to pull back a little bit and then them in Toronto were kind of shameless about it towards the end. But at the same time, I think they are looking at Darius as their franchise point guard of the future. I don't think he's going to be the next Kyrie Irving. Again, that's unrealistic to think that because he's a lot different of a player, but the Cavs really think they have a guy there. And I don't know necessarily if they're going to break up the Sexland backcourt. If let's, cause like I said, there's no rush to trade Colin Sexton, but I think it's a disservice to both these players because there is a lot of overlap. Yes, they accentuate each other well at times, but there's also times where things are just kind of ugly and clunky. And I like point to the fact that Darius performed really well and Colin was out with an injury for a little bit. I mean, Colin hardly missed time and he missed a little bit last season. And, Darius performed really well when he was given full reins of the offense and was just really controlling the tempo and pace and everything. So I think Darius just changes the conversation, the calculus a little bit, but I think you need to see more of it before you make a firm decision on it. I'm, I'm also of the school of thought, or at least the Dave Dufour school of thought, where you don't bake your takes based off one or a handful of games. You need like a, a, a serious slice of tangible data where you can say, okay, this is what we're working with and maybe this is what we need to start looking at going forward. Oh yeah, for sure. I subscribe to that um, that methodology too. This is why when I'm talking about players I haven't watched much, I just defer to somebody that's oh, seen no. enough to have that take. No, I'm the same way. Like that's how we are at Locked On Cavs, where I I work full time on top of this, and like this is my hobby and my passion too to talk about the Cavs and give them the proper coverage. But if like we have a team coming up that I will honestly say I haven't watched a ton of, I'm like, okay, let's grab somebody who has so I can educate myself and our listeners on who what and what we should expect yeah it's the only way i'm exactly the same because there's just too many games to watch every team all the time and actually have enough data from a visual aspect for yourself to i don't know how zach Lowe does it man i really don't i like read his stuff and i'm like he is so deep and like his content is dripping with like you can tell he's watched and digested all this stuff and he's like oh yeah my wife's in labor and here's like a t- 10 things i like 10 things i dislike and i'm like H- how how are you how are you human the one thing for me is like i'm pretty sure i've read somewhere that he only watches like two or three games a day but if oh. you do that for like five six seven eight years you've got such a good handle on pretty much everyone in your life. oh for sure like two, three games. I mean, let's put it that way. Two, three games a day. That's four to six, possibly seven hours of content you're consuming at any given moment. And you're still doing your normal day to day stuff, including writing and media appearances and everything else. Like that's he's he's a workhorse. Yeah, it's commitment. I've got watching a game down to a fine art of around about 55 minutes. And uh, I appreciate that. That took that took a lot of like um figuring out, getting the um getting the scrubbing right and all of that stuff. But. Two a day for me is like the best I can hope for. <laughs> no, it, usually the Cavs suck the soul out of me after a while too. Like when they go on a West Coast road trip and I have to stay up to cover it for Fear the Sword or the podcast or whatever. And we have to give like a quick recap after the game. And one time my uh, production editors are like, hey man, just bring a little energy next time. It's no big deal. And I'm like, well, they lost to the Lakers by 30 points. And I had to be up at 6 a.m. the next day. And I was up till 2.30 watching them. So you tell me where my energy came from. And he's like, okay, that's fair. I won't ask you again. Dude, I'm... Uh, <laughs> uh, how can I put this? That's pretty much my life with um, basketball. I've just accepted the fact that I watch games the day after now, unless they're ridiculously important. That's uh, fair. Are you going to watch... You a- are you, well, it's going to be pretty late for you when game, game six starts tonight, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think it's like a two AM tip. Uh, are you gonna are you gonna risk it? Oh, Wait no till chance. tomorrow. I'll just watch. I'll just do what I usually do. So it's ridiculously important, but um, for me, like by the time I watch it, the game would have literally just finished. So it'll be a oh. two AM tip. It'll probably finish about five AM. I'll probably start watching it by six. So I just turn all my notifications off, turn all the scores off on my league pass, and then just wake up and watch it as if it was on straight now. And then I'm still around to interact and do whatever on social media before the West Coast goes to sleep. That's a smart way to do it, I think. I think that's a good way to go about it. It's years and years of waking up at like 2 a.m. and realizing like this is too much. It's it's the love of the game, like some Warriors fans always say. <laughs> it's okay for them. They live in um, living one of the best parts of the world. No, I I I thought about that once where. I was complaining about the Cavs being on a West Coast road trip, but I think like if I was a West Coast basketball fan and I lived on the West Coast and my team was on the East Coast where they're three hours ahead of me, that'd be awesome if I'm just getting off work and my and I just get home, like I have dinner and everything, and my team's just tipping off, I can watch the game and then I have the rest of the night to myself. That sounds lovely. You think so, but like whenever I'm on the West Coast, like whenever I'm like uh, I've got like some really like so my best friend lives in LA. So whenever I'm mm-hmm. out there, it is so hard to actually be available when a game's on because it's on at like 4 p.m. So, See, I can get that too. Plus, there's a lot of things. I guess I'm looking at this from a Cleveland perspective. Like when the Cavs are on, I can find plenty of reasons just to stay in and watch it if it's like a 7 o'clock game where Los Angeles or New York or something, there's so much stuff going on outside of basketball that you can keep yourself plenty busy, especially if you're visiting someone. Yeah, I remember coming home at like four thirty, and I had plans at like seven. And I sit down, just like turn the TV on, and and the Celtics are playing, and it's halftime. And I'm like, how? I'm so used to that being at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. And it's four p.m. and the game's halfway through. It's really difficult to adjust to. I believe it, man. But anyway, <laughs> kind of went off tangent. Uh, I think we both agreed that Colin Sexton would be a. Interest, interesting, intriguing fit for the Celtics, but in realistic um, terms, it's most likely not going to happen because there's just better trade packages elsewhere. I think we're agreed yeah, there. Yeah, I think in a like, if all options were on the table, and like T, if Colin came to the Cavs and said, "I need to go to the Boston Celtics, and I will not sign my extension anywhere else but with the Boston Celtics," I think in yeah, Boston would be a good fit because Tatum provides a lot of things that could help make Colin better. I think Brad with the Udoka hire and like the Stevens architecture of like in the background, because I think he's going to have a lot of input still just on how the team functions, of course. So I think that's a good factor. I think Brown is a good factor. I think some of the young players that accentuate Boston that you don't have to sacrifice in this trade are a good factor. Like I think in theory, yeah, if you could get caught onto Boston without having to give up a ton if you're the Celtics or if for some reason his value is so rock bottom low that the Cavs just have to get rid of him. Yeah, Boston's a great fit, but right now I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I completely agree. There's too many other teams, uh, as you say, the Cavs completely have full control of this situation and there's too many other teams that could put together a better package, a more valuable and viable package that Boston realistically would be kind of wasting their time unless Sexton did walk in and say, hey, it's Boston or nothing. So, yeah, I think we can leave it there. There's going to be some disappointed listeners. There might be some happy <laughs> listeners, you know. It, uh, you can never please everybody. But before yeah. we go, can you let everyone know where they can find you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at AmNotEvan. If you want to check out some of my work, I host a podcast called Locked On Cavs, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We do that five days a week where we talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers or some potpourri topics, or we'll bring people in to talk about their teams. Like my friend Ty Windish was on for Tuesday's show where we talked about the Bucks and the Suns, and then we kind of segued into a conversation about how the Cavs could kind of draw inspiration from two small market teams to rebuild. And we try to keep it fun, we try to keep it light, and we try to keep our listeners informed and engaged without being too serious and getting stuck in the numbers. But other than that, my written stuff, um, I run the show at Fear the Sword as well. I'm an editor there. I We have a great team of writers there. They're all hungry and ready to cover topics that – make my life easier, but I, I do some dabbling, some opinion pieces over there too. I actually have something coming out about how the Cavs need to really prioritize getting a new lead assistant on their staff after Lindsey Gottlieb left to coach USC. So check that out. And like I said, again, my Twitter handles am not Evan. So give me a follow and just give me a shout. And I'm happy to chat with you about basketball whenever. Awesome, man. Well, we'll definitely do this again in the season when uh, the teams are going to be playing each other. And we actually know what, well, we have a better idea of what's going to happen. I'm super excited to see Evan Mobley as well. Oh, no, I'm super excited to see him too. And hopefully the pain of seeing Tristan Thompson in the Boston green and white is a little less severe next year. That's if he's still in green and white. Yeah, that's a, that's a big if, of course, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> right, everybody. Thank you for listening. As usual, please leave that five-star written review if you're using an Apple device. If you're not using an Apple device, then as usual, best form of advertisement is always word of mouth whether that's at the water cooler at work, if you're on the, in an Uber, maybe your Uber driver's got a basketball bobblehead on his dashboard, whatever it may be, just if they look like they're a Celtics fan, I'd really appreciate it if you recommended the show. We will be back again on Friday as we try and make sense of one of the most dead periods of basketball news in the last two years. Thank you very much for joining me today, Evan. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that everybody has a better grasp on Colin Sexton and what it would take for the Celtics to try and acquire him, and I think we agree it's not possible. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. 